Chapter Nine of the Ashell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Ashell Mysteries by Mrs. Charles Bryce. Chapter Nine. The next thing I remember was finding myself lying on the floor, and when I tried to get up, seeing everything in the room swinging about me like the swinging boats at a fair. I don't know how long I'd been unconscious, but at last I managed to stand up and, clinging faint and giddy to the back of the chair, looked again at the motionless figure that sprawled across the writing table. There was a great pool of blood on the polished oak of the floor beneath it which grew slowly broader as drop after drop dripped down to swell it with a great effort i conquered my faintness and staggered out of the room and down the long passage in the billiard room mr mcconachan was still practicing his game he must have been making a break for i remember hearing him speak as i opened the door twenty-seven he said aloud my voice wouldn't come, and I stood holding on to the doorpost while he, with his back to me, went on potting the red. Thank you, Miss Byrne, he said, without looking around. Then, as I didn't answer, he glanced up and saw by my face, I suppose, that something was very wrong. He came quickly to me, his cue in his hand. What's the matter, he said. Do you feel ill? Lord Ashell is dead, I said. In the library. Someone shot him. "'Didn't you hear? Dead!' he cried. "'Uncle Douglas shot? Do you know what you're saying? I heard a shot. It's true, but five minutes ago. Surely that was the keeper shooting an owl or something.' I shook my head. "'He's dead,' I repeated dully. He looked at me, still incredulous, and then darted forward and caught me by the arm. "'Here, sit down,' he said, and half pushed, half led me to a chair. I saw him run to the bell and tug violently at the rope. Then I believe I fainted again. I think that is all there is to tell you, Mr. Gimlet. You know already that the murderer got clear away, and the next morning footmarks were found outside the window, which proved to have been made by Sir David Southern. I was so idiotic when I was questioned as to mention having spoken to him outside the gunroom door and to repeat, incidentally, that he had said he had been cleaning his rifle. I never dreamt that anyone could be so mad as to suspect him, but they looked at the rifle and found that it was dirty, so that it must have been discharged again since I saw him, and it appears he did not join in the search for the murderer, and was not seen until it was all over, and, and so they arrested him and took him away. No amount of evidence could ever make me believe for a moment that he had a hand in this dreadful thing. But, oh, Mr. Gimlet, I see only too well how black it looks against him. What shall I do if you, too, know that I have told you everything, that he did it? You don't, do you? My dear young lady, said the detective, I really can't give you an opinion at present. There are a score of points I must investigate. 
a dozen other people besides yourself whom I must question before I can form any kind of conclusion. I hope that Sir David Southern may prove to be a much wrong man, but beyond that I can't go. Just at present, and I shouldn't build too much of my help if I were you. I'm not infallible, far from it, and I certainly can't prove him innocent if he is guilty. He stood up, shaking the sand out of his clothes. Let's go on up to the castle, he said. The gates were near at hand. In silence they breasted the steep incline of the drive, which wound and zigzagged up between high banks, covered with rhododendron and bracken and grown over with trees. After a quarter of a mile, these gave place to an abrupt grass-covered slope, whose top had been smoothed and leveled by the hand of man, and from which on the far side rose the castle of Inverchal. Its downton ancient framework disguised and masked by the modern addition to the building which faced the approach. A mass of gabled and turreted stonework in the worst style of nineteenth-century architecture, which in Scotland often took on a shape and semblance even more fantastically repulsive than it assumed in the south, the great tower that formed the principal remaining portion of the old building could just be discerned over the top of the flaring façade. But the nature of the site was such that most of the ancient fortress was invisible from that part of the grounds. Juliet stopped at the turn of the road. "'I will leave you here,' she said. "'You will not want me, I suppose, after you have finished. Will you come to Lady Ruth Worsfold's house and tell me what you think? It is just past the station turning. You will easily find your way, though the house is hidden by the trees. Your luggage will be there already, and as Lady Ruth is going to put you up, Mr. Mark McConaughey, or rather Lord Ashell, as he has now become, was in the act of ending a solitary meal, when Gimblet was announced. He went to meet the detective, forcing to his troubled, lined face a smile of welcome that lit up the large, melancholy eyes with an expression few people could resist. "'We are hoping you will undo what has been done,' he said. "'I look to you to get my cousin out of prison. Surely there must be some other explanation than that he did it. it I, I simply won't believe it.' "'Well, if there's any other explanation,' said Gimlet, "'I will try and find it. But the affair looks bad against Sir David Southern, from what I can hear.' "'Why should he shot through the window?' said Ashel. "'They were both in the same house.' Why should my cousin go into the garden, when he had nothing to do but to open the library door and shoot if he wanted to? Oh, said Gimblet, ordinary caution was just the garden. But he didn't know, perhaps, whether his uncle would be alone. And as a matter of fact, he was not, was he? No, uh, Miss Byrne was with him, by Jove, said Mark, bending forward to light a cigarette. I should never forget the fright it gave me when I saw her face. She looked as if, oh, she looked perfectly ghastly. I was in the billiard room when she came in, as white as a sheet, and stood there without speaking for a moment, when I imagined every thought of catastrophe except the real one, and all the time I kept thinking it would turn out to be nothing, really, as likely as not. Women will look hideously frightened and upset if they cut their finger, or 
see a rat or think they hear burglars one never knows and and then at last she got out a few words lord ashel has been shot or something of the sort and fainted what did you do asked gimblet well i had to see him you know i couldn't very well leave her in that state could i i hung on to the bell for all it was worth and the butler and footman came running i told them to look after the young lady and to call her maid and then i ran off to the library followed by old blanston the butler you know what we found there my poor old uncle dead as a doornail a hole in the window where the bullet came in and and the floor all around him covered with blood Ugh, it was horrid we only stayed to make sure he was dead and then we left him as we found him and rushed back to the house to the rest of the household and to start a chase after the murderer of course the first person i looked for was david southern but he wasn't to be found and so i and three men servants ran out at once with sticks and lanterns and hunted all over the grounds without seeing or hearing anything or anyone the hall boy had been sent down to fetch the stable men and chauffeur and to rout out some of the gardeners and anyone else he could find so that we were a decently large party and i don't think there was an inch of ground we didn't go over of all that lies within the policies the murderer however had plenty of time to get right away and as it was hopeless to scour the whole countryside in that darkness for it was as black as your hat i decided after an hour of groping about in the shrubberies that we must leave off and wait for daylight what time was it when you abandoned the hunt asked gimblet oh it was past midnight i didn't see that any good could be done by sitting up all night on the contrary i thought it important that we should all get some sleep while we could so as to be fresher for the chase when the daylight came at this time of year it gets light fairly early so i sent everyone to bed except two of the chillies whom i told to row across the lock to cernanen and fetch the doctor and police which i suppose i ought to have thought of before then i went to bed myself and when did sir david southern turn up i asked him but oh he appeared soon after we started to beat the policies i hadn't time then to ask him where he had been and he was as keen on catching the murderer as anyone of course it never occurred to me to cross-question him naturally uh, please go on with your narrative well we slept so to speak for three or four hours and then james and andrew came back with the people i had sent for and now mr gimblet i've come to a strange thing a thing i've been careful not to mention to anyone but you though i'm afraid it's bound to come out at the trial when blanston and i went out of the library we locked the door behind us but when i opened it again to let the doctor and the police in my uncle's body had been moved moved how gimblet repeated after him oh not far but it had been touched by someone i am ready to swear though i, I said nothing about it at the time when we first found him he was lying forward on the table with one arm under his head and the other hanging beside him but when i went in for the second time he was sitting sideways in his chair with his head and arm 
in quite a different place, instead of being in the middle on a blotting pad. They were further to the right on the bare polished wood. Gimlet looked at him keenly. You are perfectly certain of this, he said. Absolutely. Besides, you can ask Miss Byrne and Blanston. They both saw him as he was at first. And the police and Dr. Duncan can tell you what his position was when they went into the room. I said nothing about it to any of them, because I thought at once that it must be David who had been in there. But why did you think that? asked Gimlet. Because he knew where the key was. I took it out of my pocket when we were all alone in the smoking room before going up to bed and asked him what I should do with it. Oh, put it in the drawer, he said, pointing to the writing table. And put it in there. He, and I put it in there, as he suggested. Of course, I see now that someone else may have found the key in that drawer. But at first it did look as if David must, for some reason, have taken it and been in the library after I've gone to bed. Well, it seems very unlikely that anyone else would hit on the place where you had put it, said Gimblet, reflectively. And if they had done so, would they have recognized the key? Is a library key particular in any way? It is a rather uncommon pattern, said Mark. It is very old and strong. I think anyone who knew the key would have recognized it all right. It is hardly likely that anyone would have found it if they had to search all through the house for it in the middle of the night, commented Gimblet. Is there no other way of getting into the library? No, there is only one door. How about the window? It was broken. Could not anyone have put in a hand or raised a sash? I don't think anyone could have got in. It isn't a sash window. There are stone millions and small leaded casements in the old part of the castle where the library is, and I doubt if anyone larger than a child could squeeze through it. It seems very unlikely that anyone else would have. In fact, a child couldn't. There are iron bars down the middle, which make it too narrow. Hmm, murmured Gimlet. I should like to have a look at them. And what was the doctor's report? He said that the injuries to the heart were such that death must have been instantaneous, or practically so. Did anything else come out? asked Gimlet. Oh, nothing except the evidence against poor old David, I'm sorry to say. You haven't told me about that, asked Gimlet. Go on from where the police arrived on the scene. Well, as soon as it was daylight, we started off again on our search. But right at the beginning of it, they came upon the footsteps. Ah, and where were they? The flower bed outside the library window showed them plainly. The ground beyond that was mossy, and there were no other marks. So we divided into two parties, one going west down the side of the lock, and the other north and east over the hills. Till ten o'clock or later we beat the country, searching behind every rock and going through the woods and bracken in a close line. But we saw no signs of a stranger and came back at last, dead beaten for food and rest. When we got back, we found that the policeman left in charge had been nosing about and whiling away his time by collecting the boots of everyone in the house and fitting them to the footsteps on the flower bed. As bad luck would have it, 
David's shooting boots exactly fitted the marks. Shooting boots, said Gimlet. He wouldn't be wearing shooting boots after dinner. That's what he said himself. And there seems no imaginable reason why he should have worn them. Unless, Mark hesitated for a moment, and then went on in a tone perhaps rather too positive to carry complete conviction to a critical ear. Of course not. He can't have put them on after dinner. The idea is ludicrous. He must have made those footprints earlier in the day. Is that what he said himself? asked the detective. He had finished eating and was leaning back in his chair with that air of far-off contemplation which, which those best acquainted with him knew was habitually his expression when his attention and interest were more than usually aroused. No, admitted Mark regretfully, he doesn't. He sticks to it that he never been near the flower bed, with boots or without them. It's my belief his memory has been affected by the shock of all this, and he would insist on talking to the police, though they warned him that what he said might be used against him. I did all I could to stop him, but it was no good. It really looked as if he was doing his best to incriminate himself. How was that? What else did he say? asked Gimlet. You see, said Mark, when the Cernanin man had gotten hold of the boots that matched the footprints, he was so excited by his success, pleased to death with himself he was, and he was as keen as mustard on following up his rotten clue. The next thing he did was he wanted to look at David's guns. Of course, we didn't make any objections to that, though if I had known well, it's no earthly thinking of that now. So off we marched in procession to the gunroom. And it didn't take long to see that the only one of the whole lot there hadn't been cleaned since it was last fired was the man-licker David had shot his stag with the day before. The silly ass of a constable took it up and squinted through it as solemn as a judge. And then he handed it to my cousin, and what have you to say about this, Sir David, says he. Infernal's cheek. I shot it off yesterday, and haven't had time to clean it since, said David. And I, for one, could have sworn he was speaking the truth. Why not? Indeed, there was nothing improbable about it. But the dickens of the thing was that, while we were out of the house, he had the whole place to himself. Then the policeman had routed out poor Miss Byrne and badgered her for an account of all that had happened that evening before. And she, without a trace of thought of doing harm to any of us, I'm convinced, she's as sorry for it now as I am myself had mentioned incidentally that David had told her, when she saw him half an hour before the murder, that he had just been cleaning his rifle. She told me so, too. As far as that goes, when she passed through the billiard room on her way to the library, I happened to ask her if she knew what was he up to. Decidedly awkward for Sir David, said Gimlet, meditatively. But after all, someone else might have fired off the rifle after it had been cleaned. Oh, Mark shook his head gloomily. Oh, there are difficulties about that, too, he said. It happens that David is very, very fussy about his guns. Always cleans them himself, you know, and won't let any other soul touch him. And though he keeps them in the gunroom like the rest of us, he's got his own particular glass-fronted cabinet, which he keeps the key of himself. Now my uncle and I share one between us, and generally leave the key in the lock, so the keeper can get at the guns. 
which we never to bother to clean ourselves. Oh, not so David. Ever since we were boys, he had his own private cupboard, and no one but himself has ever been allowed to open it. We always spent our holidays here, and my uncle let us behave as if we were at our own house. David took out the key for the sergeant to use, and when he asked if anyone else could have gotten the rifle, he replied that was impossible, as the key had been in his pocket the whole time, except for an hour or two while he was asleep, when it had lain on the table by his bedside. Did he deny having told Miss Byrne he had cleaned the rifle? asked Gimlet. Why, yes, he said he hadn't told her so. It was all very unpleasant. And the police sergeant was as suspicious as you like by this time. What were you doing when the alarm was given? he asked David. Oh, I was out in the grounds, said David, and that was rather a facer for the rest of us, I must confess. He went on to say that he had fancied he saw someone hanging around at the edge of the lawn, which is the opposite side of the house from the library, and gone out to make sure. But he hadn't found no one, though he hunted about for nearly an hour. Then, till he saw the lights approaching and fill in with our party of searchers, he said that was the first time he heard about the murder. Gimlet nodded his head thoughtfully. Miss Burns said she saw him start off to look for someone, he remarked. Yes, said Mark. There's no doubt he saw a man larking in the dark. And it was dark, too, he added. Never saw such a black night in my life. I must say it beats me how he could have seen anyone. But his eyes were always rather more useful than mine, he concluded hastily. The police, however, seem to have thought it improbable, said Gimblet, since they arrested your cousin for the murder. Stupid brutes, said Mark viciously. No, they would have it. It was impossible he should have seen anyone. And what clinched it was the unlucky fact that David and my uncle had a violent row the day before. Oh, my uncle shot David's dog. I must say I think it was uncalled for. And poor David was absurdly fond of the beast. He felt very savage about it, and all the gillies heard what he said to Uncle Douglas. What did he say? Oh, a lot of rot. He lost his temper. The idiotic thing he said was that he had a good mind to shoot him and see how he liked it. For your temper, you know, I don't believe David would hurt a hair of his head. Well, it was a decidedly an indiscreet remark. Of course, the police heard all about it from the servants and keepers, and it fitted in only too well with all the rest about the footmarks and his absence from the house at the time and the rifle and everything. By and by, the bullet was a soft-nosed one which fitted David's rifle. But for that matter, it fitted mine, which is a point three fifty five man liquor like his or a dozen others on the lock side it's a very common weapon on a scotch forest but taking one thing with another there was a good deal of evidence against him so they made up their minds he had done it and across when he arrived from glasgow with his myrmidons agreed with the local idiots and took him off i'm certain there must be a mistake somewhere but so far it seems jolly hard to hit on it I hope you put your finger on the spot. I hope so, said Gimlet, but his voice was full of doubt. It's hard to see how anyone else could have used his rifle after he cleaned it. Since he admits that he locked it up and kept the key on him, 
Yes, he murmured to himself, the rifle speaks very eloquently. What other interpretation can you put on these facts? I'm sure you must see that yourself, he went on, glancing up at Mark, who was feeling in his pocket for another cigarette. Sir David told Miss Burns he had cleaned his rifle. He told the police that he locked it up, and that the key had been in his possession ever since. The rifle was found to have been fired again since he had cleaned it. His only explanation was to contradict what he had previously said to Miss Byrne. Do those facts appear to you to leave any possible loophole or doubt to his guilt? Mark struck a match and lighted his cigarette before he answered. When at length he did so, his reluctance was very plain and his voice full of regret. Poor old chap, he said. I'm afraid he must have done it in some fit of madness. As you say, there is no other imaginable alternative. Gimlet nodded philosophically. Is there anything else, he asked. Mark hesitated. Oh, yes, there's a letter which arrived for Uncle Douglas this morning, he said, which you may think worth looking at. I dare say it's of no importance, but it struck me as rather odd. He took a letter out of his pocket and handed it to the detective, who opened it and read as follows. Si me lo ne rend pas ce qu'il ne doit pas garder le coup de poudre lui tombera sur la tête. But there was no signature nor any date, Gimlet noticed. Then Gimlet turned the sheet over thoughtfully. The message was typewritten on a piece of thin foreign paper. The postmark on the envelope was Paris and the stamps French. He folded it again and replaced it in its cover. Oh, it seems the usual threatening anonymous communications, he observed. Have you any idea who it's from? Mark shook his head. None, he confessed. It looks, though, as if my uncle had in his possession something belonging to the writer, doesn't it? Don't you think it might have something to do with the murder? Well, I don't see why the murderer should send a threatening letter after the deed was done, said the detective. Still less could he have posted in Paris on the very day the crime was committed. No, that's true enough, Mark admitted reluctantly. Has any suspicious-looking persons been about this place this summer? Any foreigners, for instance, asked the detective. No, no, Mark replied. I should have heard it. For certain if there had been, it would have been an event down here. So Gimlet dropped the subject. If I may, he said, I will keep this. It may lead to something, he added, tucking the letter away in an inside pocket. Oh, that's all, I suppose. Mark was silent for a minute. He seemed to be thinking. Well, that's all I know about the murder, he said at last. But there are plenty of complications apart from that. I suppose Miss Byrne told you that my uncle electrified us all by saying she was his daughter only an hour or so before he died. Gimlet nodded. Yes, he said. She told me. It makes it very awkward for me, said Mark. I want to do the right thing, but I'm hanged if I know what I ought to do. You see, my uncle used to say that he left his property between me and David. He never made any secret of it. And as a matter of fact, I've had a communication from his London lawyers telling me that they have a very old will, 
made when I was a small boy, long before the birth of his son, and that everything is left to me. There were reasons why he may have thought David would be provided for. He was engaged to marry a very rich American, but she dropped him yesterday like a red-hot coal as soon as it began to look as though he'd be a suspect. She's gone now, I'm glad to say. As a matter of fact, if David can only be cleared of this horrible charge, I shall insist on dividing my inheritance with him. That is, if I can't get Miss Byrne to take it, or Miss McConachan. I guess I ought to call her now. Oh, Lord Ashel could leave his money where he liked, couldn't he? Gimlet inquired. Oh, yes, he could, but he would naturally have left it to his daughter, if she really was his daughter. In fact, Miss McConachan says that he told her he had done so. But I haven't come across the will so far, though I had a good hunt through his papers this morning. Meanwhile, Blanston and the housekeeper, who say they witnessed some document which may have been a will, have no idea where it is, of course. My uncle may have intended to say that he was going to make one, and Miss McConaughey may have understood him. But she seems to think he had some secret hiding place of his own, and I hope that goodness you'll be able to hit on it if he had. I can't stand the idea of profiteering by a lost will, and, and I'd far rather simply hand over the money than bother to look for this missing paper. Oh, I dare say it will turn up, said Gimblet. You haven't had much time to find it yet. Oh, my uncle was a very methodical man. Everything is in its place. You wait till you see his papers. If he made a will, he must have hidden it somewhere. We shall never dream of looking for it. It's just a waste of time hunting about, and I shall have another try at persuading my new cousin to let me make over everything to her. Well, it's not every young man in your position who would part so readily with a large fortune, observed Gimlet. Mark awkwardly deprecated his approving words. Oh, he said, I'm sure any decent chap would do the same thing in my place. End of chapter 9 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan